That's 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 15. John has been speaking to us and will continue to speak to us through this letter about uh, the need to uh, have a relationship with God and a real relationship with God, not one that's phony, not one that's superficial, but a real, genuine relationship with God. And this morning in the text we're going to consider, John is going to speak to us, or should I say the Holy Spirit through the writing of the Apostle John, is going to speak to us about one of the attacks that comes against our relationship with God. You know that just as much as you have uh, human relationships that can come under attack or have certain pressures or conflicts upon them that can drive a couple apart, well, so it's true with our relationship with God. There are things that can come in that can distance us from God and that can uh, make for a poor relationship with God. And one of these things is going to be what John speaks to us about this morning, and that's the problem of worldliness. Let's look at our text together this morning. It's just three verses. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15, and we'll go through to verse 17. We read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, John has already told us previously in his letter that if we walk in sin's darkness and claim to be in fellowship with God, we're liars. I know that sounds kind of harsh, but John says it himself. Let's take a look. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. There we read, If we say that we have fellowship with God, excuse me, with Him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Well, that's pretty plain, right? John knows just got to lay it down on the road. If you say that you're walking in darkness, yet claim to have fellowship with God, well, then there's, there's a problem there. And now John's going to point out a specific area of sin which especially threatens our fellowship with God, and that sin is worldliness, or as John calls it here in verse 15, if you look at it with me, he says, do not love the world, this love of the world. Now I know what some of you might be saying, you might be saying, wait, what's wrong with loving the world? God's given us a beautiful planet Earth. You go up to the Sierra Nevadas and you see the beautiful mountains and the trees and the snow-covered peaks and it's just beautiful. You go to the, the vast deserts and you see the beauty all on its own that the desert has with its stark landscape and the Joshua trees that dot them. And then you say, I go to the beach. And I see beautiful eight-foot sets peeling off on point breaks. And you say, that's a glorious thing. It's just beautiful. And God's given us a beautiful, what's wrong with loving this world that God has given us? Well, that's not what John means by the world. He doesn't mean planet Earth. He doesn't mean this created world. That's not what he's speaking about when he refers to the world. Now what you're saying, you're saying, David, I thought we were supposed to love the world. We're supposed to love humanity. We see all over this globe billions of people, this great mass of humanity, and I thought we were supposed to love it. I thought we were supposed to love the world. After all, doesn't the Bible say in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. I thought we were supposed to love the world. How come John says it? Do not love the world. 
Well, because when John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world, he's not talking about planet Earth. He's not talking about the mass of humanity. He's referring to a concept. I want you to think about the thinking and the philosophy and the concepts of this world as opposed to the thinking and the philosophy and the concepts of heaven. You see, the world, in the sense that John means it here, is sort of the the community of sinful humanity which is united in rebellion against God. My friends, by and large, men and women in community don't get together and think about how much they can glorify God. They think about organizing things and doing things and creating things and having progress and and having a wonderful society. But by and large, they don't think about how they can glorify God, how they can do His will on earth as it is in heaven. And this difference between heaven and earth, this difference between the kind of thinking that predominates in our world today and the kind of thinking that there is in heaven, that's the difference between the world, as John uses it here, and heavenly thinking, and we're told not to love the world. Now, one of the first examples of this idea of the world in the Bible helps us understand this point. I won't ask you to turn there, but you might want to make note of it and read this chapter for yourself later on this week. The chapter is Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, it speaks of human society being united in rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. Now, most of you have heard at some time or another the story of the Tower of Babel. This happens after the flood when mankind is beginning to multiply across the face of the earth again when Noah and his sons had come off the ark. And God told mankind in coming off of the ark after the flood to disperse over the entire globe. But they decided they didn't want to. They were going to gather together in this place called the Plain of Shinar and just have their own society there and their own culture there. So the first thing they did was they just disobeyed God. He said, scatter over the whole earth. And they said, no, we won't do it. And we also noticed that there was a leader of the world at that time. The leader, his name is kind of a funny name, his name was Nimrod, but he was the first leader of a worldwide political conspiracy against God, sort of leading human beings and discovering their own potential instead of in glorifying God. But then there was also a direct distrust of God's word and God's promise in those days. You see, they built a tower that they thought would reach up to the heavens. And you read that and you're kind of mystified. I mean, who would be foolish enough to think that you could build a building tall enough to enable you to climb into heaven? That really wasn't the idea of the Tower of Babel. I can demonstrate that pretty simply. If you wanted to build a, a, a tower that would reach up into heaven, would you build it on a plane or would you build it on a mountain? I mean, you get a couple thousand you know feet head start by building on a mountain but they built the tower of babel on the plain of shinar now my friends the reason why they built the tower of babel was because they didn't believe god's promise you find this out when you find out what they built the tower of babel with they built it with specially strong bricks and a mortar or a covering or a sealant that was made out of petroleum it was a a tar like substance a waterproofing substance They built a waterproof tower, the Tower of Babel. Now, why would you build a waterproof tower? 
Well, because they were afraid God was going to flood the world again. You say, no, wait a minute. God told them that he wasn't going to flood the world again. He gave them the rainbow as a sign and a promise in the sky that he wasn't going to flood the world again. That's right. And the world looked at God and they said, we don't believe you. We don't believe your world. Now, friends, this attitude of this world, the, the, the whole story of the Tower of Babel shows us that this collective consciousness of, of humanity, even though it might be able to achieve impressive things, and you can look at them around at the Tower of Babel, saying, my, what a great accomplishment. Look at this engineering marvel. We're so organized. We're so sophisticated as a society. Look at this great engineering marvel. Man, we're on our way. And in many ways, it would have been a nice place to live. It would have been a good culture, organized Uh, progress, all these different things. But it was united in either ignoring or being against God. And might I say, to ignore God is to be against Him. And so this is the whole spirit of the world. See, the whole story of the Tower of Babel shows us something fundamental about the world system. The world's progress, the world's technology, the world's government, the world's organization. Listen, it can make us better off but it can't make us better. We live in a very sophisticated, very organized, a very functioning world. Friends, we got it easy today. Our modern society, our lives are so much easier than people who lived three, four hundred years ago that it's almost embarrassing how good we have it today. We're so much better off, but are we better? I don't believe so. We're not better as people. And this is what's so attractive to the world. To me, I don't know, to you also, I'll assume it's the same case with you, is that so many times in in my own heart, I would much rather be better off than better. I'd prefer it. I'd rather be more comfortable than a more godly person. And the world is an expert at showing me how to be comfortable. One other thing, the story about the Tower of Babel shows us about the world system. You see, as impressive and as winning as it appears to be, the world system will never win out over God. You see, the Lord defeated the rebellion at the Tower of Babel very easily. One day they're working together in all this progress and look at the great things they're doing and it's just a technological marvel, engineering and all this. It's just fantastic. Then one day a workman comes to work and he says, you know, hand me that shovel over there. And his friend says, why are you talking gibberish to me? Don't talk to me like that. And his friend says, you're just talking nonsense. All of a sudden, God had confused their languages and they couldn't understand each other and they had to split up all over the earth. See, my friends, the world looks like it has everything going for it. The world system, the world mentality, the world thinking... It's the, the, the way we think of winners and people who are successful and the people who are with it. It looks like it has everything on its side. But you take a step back and you realize that the world system will never, never, never win out over God. So we're simply told in verse 15, look at it again with me. We read, do not love the world. Well, don't love it. The world wants your love. It wants your heart. The secular, anti-God or ignoring way, ignoring God way of doing things, I should say, that characterizes human society, well, it's very easy to love the world in this sense. And might I say, if you do love the world, that it knows how to reward you? There are rewards to be gained from loving this world. Status, uh, success, honor, prestige, comfort. 
The world knows how to reward its lovers. At the same time, the, the real tragedy of it is that all the best rewards that this world can give you, well, they're only good for as long as this world is. They're all temporary. The problem is that though we gain pre, uh, prestige and status and honor and comfort of this world, we're losing the prestige and status and honor and comfort of heaven. And one of them is going to last an awful lot longer than the other. Now, we're told not to just love the world, that is, its philosophy, its thinking, but look at it in verse 15. This is even more severe, maybe. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, again, this isn't so much a warning against a love for the beauty of the world that God created, though we must guard against worshiping the creation rather than the creator. But it's a warning against loving the material things that characterize the world system. You know, the world knows how to buy our love with the great things that it has to give us. Cars, homes, gadgets, and all the status that goes with them. It can really make our hearts at home in this world. Now, I don't know. You know, you don't look like a particularly materialistic bunch out here today. I suppose every one of us has a soft spot, right? I mean, I know I do. I mean, big fancy cars, that doesn't appeal to me. You know, big fancy home, I don't really care. Obviously, you can see I'm not into big fancy jewelry or clothes or anything like that. But, you know, hey, you know, I could use a few more surfboards. (laughs) You know, and I can't stand before them and say that I really need them, though I can think of some justification in my mind and, and so forth. But, you know, we're supposed to keep a light touch on everything in this world. Everything. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. We get too attached to the things in this world and we're too comfortable here instead of having a sense that our real home is in heaven. And the simple reason is for this. Please notice it in verse 15 again. This is powerful. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow, that's heavy, isn't it? That's just plain. That's just hitting us right between the eyes. If one claims to love God and yet loves the world, there's something wrong with his claim to love God. Now, my friends, Christians through the centuries have dealt with this fact in different ways. There was a time where if you really wanted to forsake this world and go serve God and live for God and turn your back on the world, What you did was you left the city where you lived and you went out to some desolate desert monastery and you lived with other monks or other nuns and and that was your way of turning your back on the world and saying, I'm just living for Jesus. There's a problem with that. First of all, you know, you just took the world with you when you went into that monastery. But secondly, my friends, Jesus never wanted to remove us from this world. Jesus prayed for us, and he prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. And maybe it would be easier for us not to be worldly if we lived in a monastery somewhere, but that wouldn't fulfill the heart of Jesus. Jesus said, I want you people to go and impact society. I'm giving you a harder job, a higher calling, to be in the world, but not of the world. Friends, that's our... Our need today, you know, just like a great ship can be in the water, but not have the water in it. 
Well, if the ship isn't in the water, it's not a ship at all. What good is it? It's in dry dock. We need to be in the world. Then again, if the water's in the ship, well, it's a sinking ship, right? Then it's no good as a ship either. And that's why we need to be in the world, but not of the world. And I'm afraid to say that as we take a look at the church at the end of the 20th century, well, let's just say it's a sinking ship, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty worldly. The way we think, the, the, the customs we adopt, the, the things we make for the measures of success and goodness in the church, so often it's brought to us from the world's agenda instead of what's precious to the heart of God. Now, he's going to characterize what the world is all about more in verse 16, where he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, these lusts, these desires, the lust of the flesh, uh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the idea behind the pride of life, it's just that desire for status to impress others by outward appearances, even if it's a deceptive appearance. Uh, All of these things, they're what draw us. It's a very powerful, powerful way to draw us. I I think that when John lists these three things, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, I think he's referring back to Genesis chapter 3, to the first time when somebody uh, succumbed to the temptations of worldliness, and that was Eve in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, tells us that when Eve was in the Garden of Eden, and right before she took of that forbidden fruit, which, by the way, you know, we don't know Most people think it was an apple, you know, or that's how it's drawn. We don't know. Could have been a banana. Could have been a mango or papaya. I don't know, maybe it was a special fruit that nobody's ever seen before. I don't know. But before she took of that forbidden fruit, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that she looked at that tree, she looked at the fruit, and she saw that the tree was good for food. In other words, she looked at it and she said, man, that's going to taste good. That's going to satisfy this craving I have. She went after it with the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. And it also says of Eve in the Garden of Eden, before she took of the forbidden fruit, that she saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes. She said, man, that's the most beautiful piece of fruit I've ever seen in my life. All the other trees, the fruit on them, it looks junky. It looks lousy. I don't want to eat that stuff. This is the good stuff. It looks so pretty and so aesthetically pleasing. She went after the lust of the eyes. And then Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, tells us that before Eve took of the forbidden fruit, that she considered it, and she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. Well, how smart that fruit would make her. How her husband would admire her. Well, she'd be smarter than Adam. And so she went after the pride of of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they all work together to entice us away from godliness and towards worldliness. You know the one of the best places you can see the spirit of the world in operation? Just watch commercials on television. Now, I think one of the kinds of commercials that illustrates this most powerfully is beer commercials. I mean, I think you got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life all wrapped up right there in the one in the beer commercials. You know, first of all, they're, they're trying to sell you on the beer because, look, it tastes so great. Oh, this is going to satisfy 
your craving for beer. It's going to satisfy this desire of your flesh to drink beer. This is going to taste really great. So they're appealing to the lust of the flesh. Then they try to appeal to the lust of the eyes by you know, putting all these uh, beautiful women in bikinis in front of you on the, on the beer commercial, which I, I don't know. I, I don't see many women in bikinis walking around holding beers, but they're on the beer commercials. And uh, there they are, you know, here, look at this, be enticed, you know, it's just beautiful, here it is. And, and they're trying to trap you in with this lust of the eyes. They got you in the lust of the flesh, then they're trying to appeal to the lust of the eyes, and then, well, then it's the pride of life. They put all these beautiful people doing all these wonderful things on the beer commercial. It's like, here, drink this beer and you can be like them. You know, you can have these kind of friends and be this kind of person. Yeah, that's the kind of winner I want to be. I'll drink that beer. And there they just try to entice you by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's easy for us to look at an exaggerated example like that and kind of laugh over it. But friends, I want you to stop and soberly consider for a minute why they put commercials like that on the, on the television set. Do you know why? Because they work. Because we're drawn by those very things. Now, I don't know, if we're drawn by it, and if there's something in us that responds to the lust of the flesh, if there's something in us that responds to the lust of the eyes, if there's something in us that responds to the pride of life, then why does God say we shouldn't live after those things? For a very simple reason, and explains it in verse 16. Did you notice? It says, therefore, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's why God has told us not to live after worldly things, because, well, they're of the world. They're not of God the Father. And God knows that we have a fleshly, bodily nature, and that we have physical needs that feel good when they're satisfied, but it's not in God's nature to influence us by the lust of the flesh. And God knows that we have eyes, and that appearance means a lot to us, and He made a beautiful world to please us. But God always looks beyond the outward appearance, and it is not in the nature of God to influence us through the lust of the eyes. And God knows that we have emotional and psychological needs to be wanted and to accomplish things. He made us this way. But my friends, it is not in God's nature to influence us by the pride of life. Now I think we rarely really appreciate or understand how much the world has dominated our thinking. And we usually believe that we think much more biblically than we really do. But friends, I want to challenge you. I hope the Holy Spirit of God will challenge your heart right now as I'm speaking just for you to examine your mind and your heart to see just how worldly your way of thinking might be. And I don't say that to condemn you. I say it to say we need to move from the place where our thinking is worldly and move to the place where our thinking is biblical, where it's godly, where it's the kind of thinking from heaven. Now think about your standard for success. Is it worldly or is it godly? Think about the Apostle Paul. Was he a failure or a success? By worldly standards, the Apostle Paul was a failure. Any guy who dies the end of his days, all alone, friendless, in prison, and with an unsure legacy behind him, by worldly standards of success, he's a failure. By heaven's standards... Paul was a success. 
Well, how about your life? Now, maybe you've come here very discouraged this morning because let's be honest, by worldly standards of success, and I'm not going to sell it short, you're a loser. You just don't measure up by worldly standards of success. You're not wealthy enough. You're not comfortable enough. You're not influential enough. You're not popular enough. My friends, can I just ask you to put all of that out of your mind for a minute, and I want you to measure yourself across the standards of heaven. Are you a success in the eyes of heaven? And don't answer that question automatically, yes. Maybe you're not a success in the eyes of heaven. Maybe your priorities are such where you're so concerned about being a success in the eyes of the world that you failed the measure of success in the eyes of heaven. And it'd be a terrible thing for us to get to heaven and go before God, yes, look at all I accomplished. And I said, I, that's not what I had for you to do. What's this, he says. That's nothing to me. How about your standard for what makes a person of the opposite sex appealing? Is it a worldly standard or is it a godly standard? Oh, I know it's very easy for us to talk spiritual about this. You know, I only look at the inner person. I don't look at the outer person. Oh, yeah? Well, then how come you're only dating gorgeous-looking girls? How come you only go out with a guy if he's a real looker? You, you, You say this, but for some reason, you know, you're only attracted to people who fit this world's measure of attractiveness and appearance. We've got to be real on this. Is it a worldly standard or a godly standard? Think about your standard for spirituality. Is it worldly or godly? Did you know that there is a worldly spirituality out there? You know, the guy can put the right image and cast himself in the right way and knows how to pray the right way and conducts himself in a certain way. It's a worldly kind of spirituality. It's all about image. It's not about substance. My friends, that's one of the things you'll find out about worldly ways of thinking is that's all it cares about is image. It doesn't care about substance, but God cares about substance. And how great is our need to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, finally, and this is in verse 17, John's going to speak to us about the foolishness of worldliness. Friends, I, I just want to tell you that in my life and in yours, To whatever extent we're thinking and living worldly, we're fools. And I say that to myself just as much to any of you all. Because look why. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. My friends, just as we saw with the example of the Tower of Babel, the world never wins out against God. Though by some appearances it does, but it never does. John says it plainly here in verse 17. Look at it for yourself. He says, the world is passing away. That's not a prayer. He doesn't say, Lord, I pray that the world would pass away. It's not a wish. He didn't say, Lord, I wish the world would pass away. It's not a spiritual sounding desire. It's a fact. The world is passing away. And we must live our lives and think our thoughts aware of this fact that what we have right now is passing away. You know, I think of the life of this man Lot, who's spoken of in 
the book of Genesis chapters 13, 14, and 19. His life really shows the folly of worldliness. Lot wanted to be a financial success, so he put himself first just in the, in the direction of living towards people who were very ungodly. But before long, he was living among the ungodly in the city of Sodom. And he was a city councilman. You can think of all the rationalizations, all the excuses. Well, I can be such a great influence here. But in fact, he was not a great influence. He didn't influence a single person to godliness. And because of his own worldliness, because of his own compromise, he he couldn't speak of a strong standard, of a strong stand for righteousness to anybody else. He had worldly status, he had worldly influence, he had worldly wealth, he had worldly comfort. Yet it was all taken away in a moment when the judgment of God came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot put all of his eggs in the wrong basket and he was burned by the fact that the world is passing away. My friends, I'm talking to you this morning and asking you to make investments. Investments insecure things. You know, what if you somehow had some supernatural knowledge that the stock market was going to crash on a certain date, but you just kept all your money in it because it had done so well before? Well, that's fantastic. But you ignore the fact that it's going to crash if you had some kind of strange knowledge that that was going to happen. My friends, you'd be foolish because you're keeping your investment in something that you know is going to pass away. Well, the same thing is true with our lives. We can invest our lives in the things of this world which are going to pass away, or we can invest our lives in eternal things. Friends, if you amass a bunch of the stuff of this world, it's not going to be any use to you. You know, the ancient pharaohs were buried in the pyramids were all, with all sorts of riches, with diamonds and jewels and gold and silver, and they thought that this stuff would be of some use to them in the world to come. Well, the riches were only of any use to the grave robbers. The pharaohs could take none of that worldly stuff with them to the world beyond. What would happen if you could take a bunch of gold with you to heaven? Walk between the gates of heaven, God would look at you and say, we use that for asphalt up here. The streets are paved with it. That's useless up here. Nobody's going to drive up to heaven in a U-Haul trailer with all the stuff they have in the world behind them. It's all passing away. But notice it here at the end of verse 17. He who does the will of God abides forever. My friends, right now, you're in contact with three eternal things. You're in contact with the Holy Spirit of God, because He's present here among us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if your heart's been born again by the Spirit of God, then the Holy Spirit indwells you. If not, you're aware that, that you're in a special place, that God's Spirit is among us right now. That's eternal. The words in the book that you have right in front of them, that's eternal. The Bible says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. There's one other eternal thing that's around you. Might I say, these three eternal things are what's really worthy of your investment. This is what's going to last. This isn't going to crash. God, his word, and the people around you. You know, they're eternal too. They're going to last forever. And that's what God wants us to interest ourselves and put our focus on. Not this world, nor the things of the world. 
And let's pray and ask him to do that exact work.